Good morning. How good it is to be together. God has gathered us together today for a purpose, and we get to now look into His Word, and today we're going to talk about mercy beyond belief. Mercy. Before we read God's Word, I just want to say that we need mercy every day because we sin every day. And even those who have trouble showing mercy to others want it for themselves. And mercy is loving kindness. Mercy is relief for the misery that is the result and the consequence of sin. And God is merciful. He says in Romans 9 that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. In Ephesians 2 and verse 4 we read that God is rich in mercy. Now, we're in Matthew chapter 9, and as you see in Matthew chapter 9, opposition towards Jesus is growing. And it is understandable that Jesus would be dismissed by pagans from the area of uh, Gadara, where we saw earlier... ...that the three groups that are now taking issue with Jesus would be more closely aligned with him. You've got Bible teachers who are taking issue with him regarding forgiveness. See that last week and when Jesus healed the paralyzed man and they took issue over him that he had forgiven and, and basically was declaring that he is God. They had trouble with that. Next week we're going to see the disciples of John the Baptist engaging Jesus in a fasting controversy. Why they fast why Jesus' disciples don't. So he's not pious enough. But today what we see is that there is a controversy brought on by very serious Pharisees regarding mercy, regarding fellowship, regarding who you should hang out with if you're a follower of Christ. And should you befriend those with bad reputations? Those are questions that we need to answer. Now after Jesus had forgiven the sins of the paralyzed man... Those who saw and heard it must have had tons of questions for Jesus. Questions like, like we have. Like how much sin will Jesus really forgive? And what are the boundaries of sin? Are, is there anyone too hopeless outside the realm of forgiveness? And would God be willing to forgive my sin? Those are questions we have and most likely those are questions they had back then. But God's mercy is beyond belief. It is controversial, as you can see by the controversy that is uh, stirred up in the passage we will read today, it is uncommon and it is life-changing. It changes people's lives. So I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 9 through 13. I'd ask if you would please stand with me to read God's word. So God's mercy is beyond belief. It's controversial, it is uncommon, it is life-changing, and we will see Jesus expects his followers to be merciful too. So Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. 
And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for how strong you are and how strong it is. We thank you, Lord, that you are a merciful God, showering loving kindness upon us, giving us relief for the misery that is the consequence of our sin. And thank you, Lord, that you you desire mercy and not sacrifice. But Lord, help us learn what this means for us today. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is the one who holds back what our sins deserve due to his kindness. And with regard to following Jesus, who is the merciful one, in this passage, I want you to see three primary things. Mercy's madness and its mission and its mandate. First of all, mercy's madness. In verse 9, it has to do with Matthew's call. Jesus calling Matthew to follow him, to leave everything and become his disciple. And this was initiated by God. It was a call given by God. And what it shows us is that mercy chooses the humanly hopeless. Mercy chooses the humanly hopeless. Now, you wouldn't think of Matthew as humanly hopeless. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He was one of Jesus' followers. How could he be humanly hopeless? It was because before he became Jesus' followers, he was seen as one who was humanly hopeless. God's mercy chooses the humanly hopeless. It is uncommon. Mercy is uncommon. Mercy from God and man is uncommon in a world that shows no mercy and sees mercy as weakness. Jesus is walking along. He sees Matthew. Matthew's name means gift of Jehovah, gift of God. And and he's also known as Levi. The other Gospels identify him as Levi. We don't know if he was renamed by Jesus or what, but here's Matthew sitting at a tax booth. It was his job to sit at the tax booth, but he didn't just sit, he collected money from people. Money that they preferred not to give. You know how that feels when you're writing out your check for your taxes or doing it online. But Matthew was sitting at the tax booth, and it meant that he was an owner-operator. Not the highest or lowest type of tax collectors, somewhere in the middle. It means he didn't work most likely for someone else, and he didn't just oversee other people, he was probably his own boss. And as a tax collector, he would have been viewed as a liar, a cheater, a a thief, and a traitor by his own people, by the Jews. To Jews, Matthew failed epically. He was considered unacceptable on several counts. First of all, politically. Politically, he conspired with the Romans to collect the taxes they imposed. Now, in those days, you were taxed for everything. You were taxed 
for your grain and your fruit. There was a ground tax. There was an income tax. There was a poll tax. There was a duty tax on imported and exported goods. There was even a tax for using roads and crossing bridges, for entering towns and entering harbors. Pack animals were taxed. It seemed like everything was taxed. But on top of all that, Matthew got rich by charging more than the going rate. See, you would basically be a, uh, an employee of Rome, but anything over and above what they wanted that you could get was free game, fair game. Extortion was, was on the menu. Uh, on, on, so he was in Capernaum, place of major crossroads. He would have been one of the, the uh, more rich tax collectors because he most likely got wealthy from collecting taxes of all types, of every kind. So he was politically considered unclean. He was religiously considered unclean. Jewish law barred tax collectors from all synagogue services, even from uh, giving witness in, a, in their courts of law. Socially, religious people called those who failed to keep every picky detail of the law the people of the land. Matthew was one of them. The, or, the Orthodox could not go on a trip could not do business with, could not give or receive anything from them or have them as guests in their house or be guests in their house. And Matthew is one of these, people of the land. So Jesus comes up to this man, which if you think about shocking situations, controversial things that Jesus did, this might have been one of the most controversial things Jesus did. He comes up to Matthew and he says, follow me. Follow me. And without hesitation, Matthew arose and went. Matthew wanted what was withheld from him in that day, which was mercy, which was forgiveness, which was acceptance. He jumped at the chance. He left everything, Luke tells us, and he followed. He, he would have been leaving his job, his position, and his income. In those days, you left your tax collecting business, someone else would take up after you. You could not go back. So Matthew, probably more than any of the disciples, followed Jesus at great uh, monetary sacrifice. He lost a lot of money in the process. The significance of what happened here is that it shows uh, something uh, deep about what God does in bringing us to himself. This shows that our standing with God depends not on us, but God's grace. Matthew, in the midst of his job as a tax collector gets chosen by Jesus. Now, you see this idea in Titus chapter 3. In Titus chapter 3, in verses 4 through 7, it tells us that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That our standing with God is not our doing. It depends not on us, but on God's grace. We see that. God does the choosing and the saving. We do the responding and believing. 
Yes, Romans 10, faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You will be saved. But mercy chooses the humanly hopeless. The next thing we see is mercy's mission in verses 10 and 11. And we see it at Matthew's dinner. It's a dinner that Matthew is, is giving and it was inspired by God and it shows us that mercy helps the humanly helpless. Mercy chooses the humanly hopeless and it also helps the humanly helpless. Mercy's mission is to go out of the highways and the byways and find others in need of Christ. What happens in verse 10? It says, as Jesus reclined at table in the house. It would have been Matthew's house. We know that from Mark and Luke. But as he reclined at table in the house, a whole bunch of tax collectors and sinners came and were gathered with Jesus and his disciples. They were in close company, close fellowship. It was, it was controversial. Nothing less than controversial. Not, nothing less than madness to the, those who, who were spying on this dinner party. God's mercy is controversial to people who do not understand. Jesus reclined at table... In Matthew's house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with them, eating food with people, Jews, considered unworthy of contact with the general population. You wouldn't do this. Now, when the Pharisees saw this, you know, what were they doing? Spying? Busybodies. They were overseeing the affairs of others, and they saw this, and they said to Christ's men, they cowardly went to his men and not straight to Jesus, and they said to them, They grumbled, by the way, as Luke uh, 5.30 tells us. They complained, and they said, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he do this? This is not clean. This is not cool. This is not right. This is wrong. See, to them, Jesus failed morally. To them, Jesus liked and agreed with their sin and entered into it. Their attitude towards these types of people in their, in their understanding, their, their attitude was active animosity, not just indifference. It wasn't that they just didn't care about them. They hated tax collectors. And then they had a classification of sinners. Now, we know everyone is a sinner, but they had a sinner classification. The contrast is, is not hard to see. The merciless are fixated on the faults of others. The merciful are aware of their ongoing need for forgiveness. Think about last week, we looked at the paralyzed man. The paralyzed man's friends brought him to Jesus. Here, Matthew brings Jesus to his friends for the same reason. He wanted them to know. He wanted them to be freed. He wanted them to be accepted by God. These these. These insiders that were on the fringe of of Jewish life. Sharing our faith in Christ is to be done in daily life. Sure, we're to share the gospel with all, but we're to evangelize in the places where we spend the most of our time. It's where God has put us. Telling the spiritually helpless the message of Romans 5 and verse 6 that while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's why in my life I am 
my radar is fixed most closely on those who live nearby me because I see them often. I talk with them often. My radar is fixed most closely on those uh, at restaurants that I frequent and stores that I frequent because those are the people that I see most often. My radar is fixed even in my own home because those are the people that I see most often and we are to evangelize in the places we spend the most of our time. Next, we see mercy's mandate. We see it in verses 12 and 13. See, word got back to Jesus, and he had something to say about what God requires, about how mercy has a mindset of godly compassion, kindness, which is life-changing. God's mercy is life-changing to those who receive it. In verse 12, when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. Literally, those who think they are well don't think they need a doctor. And those who admit they are sick do. Rome saw mercy as weakness. One of their philosophers called it the disease of the soul. Mercy, the disease of the soul. To the contrary, mercy is life-giving medicine for the soul's disease. One commentator put it this way, mercy eliminates the pain. Grace cures the disease. Today we can go to a doctor. We can go visit a hospital when we're sick. But in those days, doctors went to patients. They made house calls. Jesus is saying, I am the doctor of the soul. And that if I'm going to help the spiritually sick, I must go where they are and be with them. So he tells them, go and learn. Verse 13, go and learn what this means. He's he's giving them an assignment. He's giving them homework. Go and learn what this means. This this phrase, go and learn, is significant. It was commonly used by rabbis to correct those who did not know what they should have known. It was a stinging rebuke. It was not a suggestion. It was a command. A way of saying, go do your homework. You are deficient. You should know this. They could rattle off huge portions of the law. They could argue the finer points of theology, but they were ignorant behind the real meaning behind it. They didn't have God's heart for the lost. They were not in step with God's program. They had makeup work to do. And he pointed them to the prophet Hosea. Let's go there. Hosea. Now, the context of Hosea is God's judgment on people who pretended to be followers but weren't interested in finding out and following God's agenda. People who pretended to be in line with God but whose hearts was far from, were far from Him. Hosea. Now, he points them to Hosea, quoting chapter 6 and verse 6. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Go learn what this means. 
So here's your assignment. Figure out what I desire mercy and not sacrifice means. Then come talk to me about who I should be hanging out with on a daily basis and who I should be eating food with as I recline at table. Isaiah, excuse me, Hosea 6 and verse 6 says, I desire mercy, steadfast love, and not sacrifice. Now, sacrifice is good. God, God uh, doesn't mind sacrifice if it's given from a merciful heart. If it's given from a heart that's in the right place. But sacrifice devoid of mercy is empty. It's false. It's, it just falls to the ground. I desire steadfast love, mercy, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He's saying, know me. Know my heart. Know what matters to me. And don't be so worried about keeping all your lists of rules and regulations of how you think you should live. You know, the context of of Hosea really has a thread of mercy running all the way through it. Hosea chapter 1 and verse 6. The Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy. There was a a child born and, and God says, call her name, no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. They were too far gone, he is saying. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So there's, at the beginning, there's this idea of no mercy for some, mercy for others. In chapter 2 and verse 1, Israel's unfaithfulness being exposed already, the word of God says, Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Chapter 2 and verse 19. God says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Chapter 2 and verse 23. I will have mercy on no mercy. I will have mercy on the one called no mercy. I love that. God's promise to his people. Hosea 4 and verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. There is no mercy being shown. And no knowledge of God in the land. And then you go to verse 6 of chapter 6, which Jesus is quoting one of his favorites, by the way. He brings it up again in Matthew chapter 12. I desire mercy and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And Hosea chapter 10 and verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Reap mercy. Break up your fallow ground. uh, The ground that has become hardened. The hearts that have become uh, callous to God. For it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. And then in chapter 14, the last chapter of Hosea. Verse 1 says, return. It's a picture of mercy, by the way. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. 
Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. It's the idea of asking for mercy. Accept what is good. We will pay with bowls and vows of our lips. And then it says at the end of verse 3, in you, the orphan finds mercy. The book of Hosea ends with, the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them. The transgressors stumble in them. God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And Jesus, at the end of verse 13, gives more clues into what he is pointing to because he says, because I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call those who are self-righteous, who think they are righteous, but sinners, those who will admit their need of me. And Luke 5 and verse 32 tells us, he says, I called sinners to repentance. The very thing that Hosea was, was calling God's people to do is to return to God, to confess their sins, to turn around and do a 180 and go back to God, whom they had been unfaithful to. Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 1 Timothy 1.15 says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. His purpose. Those humble enough to admit their need. The idea is here that God is calling them to learn a, a heart attitude and a lifestyle of compassionate concern for others that they might know the truth and be set free. The gospel tells us the truth. The gospel tells us that God is holy, that we are dead in sin and objects of God's wrath, that sin has consequences. We are in debt to God. We have no way of paying our debt, and therefore we need mercy. Jesus Christ paid the penalty so that God might be merciful to sinners. At the cross, Christ's blood was shed and God's justice was satisfied and mercy made available. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 10 says this to, to believers in Jesus. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. It sounds a lot like Hosea, no mercy. He says, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy. God's mercy is controversial. God's mercy is uncommon, and it, it is, it is life-changing. Once you've had a taste of God's mercy, you know that your life will never be the same. But I think we need to address some common issues we often run into 
that can get in the way of becoming merciful, of us becoming merciful people. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There are some things that get in the way of our becoming merciful at times, and we'll address two of them. Number one, and this is not easy for us to hear, but Christians are often seen as critical and judgmental. They're often viewed that way by those inside and outside the faith. Considering others undeserving of God's grace, almost seen as looking down our noses at others thinking they're not good enough. And at times, that's, that's unfair. It's an unfair characterization. You, you want to reach other people. You want to live in light of God's mercy. Um, and, and maybe someone misjudges your actions or your look or your motive or, or just the expression on your face. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, my parents would sometimes say to me, wipe that look off your face. And, I, I, and I've told you this before. I'm like, I, I, for the life of me, I, I wasn't trying to put one on my face. Now, the funny thing is I've said the same thing to my kids. It's easy to misjudge the motives of others, and at times, though, that is an unfair characterization that Christians are seen as judgmental and critical, okay? Um, but at times, it, it is fair. It is. It, we start to think we're not that bad. We kind of forget all about what our former life was like, and, and uh, we, we start to think things like, well, Jesus makes good people better, and that it wasn't that I was lost and, and on my way to hell and under God's condemnation because of my sin, but I was just a good person to God, and I was on my way to God, and God gave me that final nudge towards Him. Jesus gave me the final little push up the hill, and I was there, but I did most of the work. I was a pretty good person. That's, it's easy to start thinking that way. But the truth is this. We were spiritually unable to do anything for ourselves. And God rescued us from hell. That is the truth. Sometimes it's more like this. We, we see our own need, and when we see how unworthy we are, but we can't relate to people who seem more sinful than us. And, and so it's, and, and so sometimes it's, it's, it's warranted, this idea that, that, Christians are seen as critical and judgmental. And it is hard to know sometimes where perception stops and reality begins. And it gets a little jumbled up in our minds and and, uh, it's easy for us and others to make uh, universal applications, uh, stereotypes, and whatnot. Um, But it is not hard to admit that the church has an image problem in the world. So the question is, how can we overcome the perception and the reality wherever those apply? And I'll give you five ideas to apply prayerfully and by God's grace. Number one, and by the way, these are to apply prayerfully and by God's grace. Number one, talk less, listen more, and then do something. Talk less, listen more, and and then do something. Try uh, to help in some tangible way in the name of Jesus. It's the cup of cold water in Jesus' name idea. It's the idea that mercy acts 
on behalf of the undeserving and ill-deserving. And if you think about us being merciful towards someone else, it would be the idea of us acting on their behalf in a good way so that they would be open to hearing the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, that they would both see in our life and in our actions towards them and then hear with our words the gospel truth and there would be nothing in our actions to pull the rug out from under the truth that we're speaking. Talk less, listen more, and then do something. Second thing is don't label people. Don't label people. Look beyond initial appearances and impressions. Now, here's what happens often. We get an initial impression of someone, uh, maybe by their look or by their words or by their actions or what they're doing, and what happens is we carry that initial impression on throughout our relationship with them, and we, we, we hold on very tightly to it and won't let it go. What happens is very unfair is that we start... And I do, it, I do it far too often, and this is human nature, I know, but what happens is then you, you've got this idea fixed in your mind about them, and it's really hard to break. So the idea is don't label people, and it would be great if we could do that from the get-go, right? You know, from the very beginning of a, of a relationship, just to be open and, and, and free about that. But what, what more often is the case is we've got to take labels off of people that we put on them without you know, ripping off too much hair in the process, you know. Um, when it's, it's hopefully not too painful. First um, Samuel chapter 16 and verse, 17, and verse 7, we know this well, but it, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And, you know, you say, well, but I'm not God, so I'm going to keep looking. And of course, you know, you look at the outward appearance. But the idea is, then, then slow down and don't be so quick to rush to judgment. Hear, hear it out first. Um, See, sometimes the outward appearance does reflect the heart. Sometimes it does not. But what happens is mercy, we're merciful, and we're becoming more merciful, then we are going to look beyond the surface to substance. And it's amazing what you'll find with some people at times that look so, so rough on the outside and how tender-hearted they are on, on the inside. I've done this so many times in my life. I've misjudged people just like that at a moment's notice and then they become one of my best friends. Mercy looks beyond the surface to the substance. Jesus knew Matthew's heart so he had a leg up on it, all right? We don't know people's hearts but what happens is mercy activates grace. Mercy enables grace to be given. Uh, Mercy sees a hopeful future for someone. Do you see others as hope, hopeless losers or, or candidates for redemption? Now, only God knows, but we've got to try. If we shun some people, we will not reach many people. And God has called us to go to all people. But mercy looks beyond the surface. And yes, you can, you can say, well, you'll know them by their fruits. Remember, Jesus said you'll know them by their fruits. Yes, you will. But one piece of fruit is insufficient evidence to convict. A pattern is one thing. Sometimes we make the judgment at the first piece of fruit rather than seeing how things play out, and time will tell. 
you can, you know, we say things like, you can fool me once, you know, shame on me, and you fool me twice, shame on, no, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, right? I was testing you to see if you knew. But what happens with that is we're guarding uh, the fragile ego. We're, we're, we're guarding our reputation lest we be taken advantage of. And what we see with God is he is extending mercy without merit. Mercy without merit. We want to give mercy when it is deserved. But think about it. When we're begging God for mercy, when we're asking God for mercy, we don't deserve it. <laughs> That's the nature of mercy. It's given when it's not deserved. It's a gift. Number three, timing is everything. Timing is everything. You can pick any, any controversial subject you'd like. Um, I'll use one example of a controversy that becomes political and biblical and relational all wrapped into one, but you wouldn't get into a debate about abortion in a setting where there is a person who has had one. You just wouldn't go there. That's just tactless. So you've got to seek to understand the context before you seek to be understood. You don't want to speak your mind without knowing the context or else you may put your foot in your mouth, right? I've done that so many times. I, I don't, I've stopped counting. Um, but what happens is a lack of mercy demands uh, things. It demeans people. It is, it is harsh. It is hard-hearted. But mercy gives a pardon. Mercy proclaims release to prisoners. Mercy has a heart of compassion that is characterized by tact and sensitivity and kindness towards other people. Timing is everything. Number four, put yourself in their place. Put yourself in their place. Empathize. Walk in their shoes. You'll be giving loving comfort rather than a debate. Think of how you have learned mercy. How you have experienced mercy. Me, uh, I will say in my life, it, is, it was primarily early on in life through the pain of being treated unmercifully by peers from about the fourth grade to the eighth grade. And through the healing that God continues to do in my life through the truth of the gospel. Um, now, we, we experience mercy daily through personal pain that we experience. When we, when we experience personal pain, and I, I, I applied that this week, and, and we can apply this on a moment-by-moment basis, but you, you experience a personal pain, and if you go in the wrong place with it, you will just nurse the pain. But you go to the right place with it, with Jesus, He relieves the pain. He carries you through the pain. We receive comfort from God, this mercy. Um, and the fifth thing I, I would say is be real. Be real. Um, be genuine. Be, be honest. Remember, remember where you came from. Remember or realize where you came from or what you could have done but for the grace of God. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And verse 9. We'll start there. Just read verses 9 through 11. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. And what he says is going to sound harsh right away. This is, this is God's word. But it, it becomes merciful in, in, in verse 11. Because you see what he's trying to say. He says in verse 9, Do you not know... 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What Paul is saying. He's describing people whose pattern of life proves they are not saved. Pattern of life. Verse 11, he says, And such were some of you. He's speaking to the church. He's saying, Such were some of you. But, he basically says the the kingdom of God is not for those whose pattern of life proves they are not saved. The kingdom of God is a spiritual realm where God rules over all who belong to him by faith. And that genuine believers might commit these sins, but it won't be the pattern of their life because a genuine believer hates sin and seeks to put it to death by the Spirit. The unrighteous idea here is falling short of the standard set by God. And Paul says to the church, such were some of you, this used to be you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, not all Christians are guilty of all these sins, but everyone is a sinner. And, and Paul wrote to the church saying that those in it used to have these patterns of life, some of them used to have these patterns of life, and washed refers to the new life that we get in Christ through the spiritual cleansing and regeneration. This uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 idea. Anyone who's in Christ, they're a new creature. Right? And sanctified refers to new behavior. Domination by sin has been broken. The chains of sin have been broken. We are not perfect, but we are engaged now in a new way of living. Justified relates to uh, the believer standing before God. That the... Christ's death on the cross uh, brought the believer um, forgiveness of sin because the believer's sins were put on Christ at the cross and Christ's righteousness was given to him. God is the source of our life in Christ and we've got to be real and remember that. So prayerfully by God's grace we need to talk less, listen more and then do something and don't label people and remember timing is everything and Put yourself in their place and then be real. Be real. Do these things and you will find you are being merciful. Those who withhold mercy don't receive mercy. But I I will say, by the way, that a lot of Christians will say that they feel more accepted by unbelievers than believers. And many believers struggle more with judgment toward believers than unbelievers. I've had people tell me that even this week that they are more harsh to the family of God than they are to outsiders. But you do these things with believers. You can practice these things on believers. And you will be loving your brothers and sisters, those that are in your family, family of faith. As James says, judge nothing before the time. The judge is standing at the door. And I think one of the things the judge is doing standing at the door is looking for those who are trying to take his place. (laughs) And and, uh, you don't want to be there. The idea, the whole essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The whole essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. One last question I want to deal with, and it's this. is Christians often isolate completely or 
identify fully. So how can we engage the culture without being tainted by it? The idea of separatism or identification. Uh, Should you immerse yourself in the culture to win some, becoming all things to all men, or come out from their midst and be separate? Which one is it? And we tend to think in terms of two alternatives. Um, Geographical, uh, out of fear of contamination, that leads us to get as far away from some people as possible so we don't get tainted by them. Um, Or the other one is a practical one, fear of irrelevance, leads us to be fully immersed and identified and literally become one of them. And uh, neither extreme is very useful or helpful to our spiritual life or fruitful in making disciples. Uh, There is a third way, and it is a relational way, and it's a way that you have to do heavy lifting for. (laughs) It's not the easy way. The other two are easy. Uh, but be, you got, on this one, you've got to be on your toes and be prepared because, because, remember, as Christians are in a spiritual battle. And here's, here's the third way, the relational way. Redemptive interaction. Redemptive interaction. Engaging the culture personally while preserving God's standards biblically. In the world, but not of it, kind of an idea. As Jesus uh, said in John chapter 17. It's the idea of walking by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So in, in that way, there will be places you go. You choose to go based upon your, your mission in Christ. There will also be places you choose not to go based on your mission in Christ and your life in Christ. Think about the dinner party at Matthew's house. It was on his turf and it was focused on Jesus. It was a Christ-centered gathering. But here's the Pharisees separating themselves because they thought they were too holy. Fear of contamination. But Jesus, the Holy One, engaged. We fear contamination or rejection, therefore we do not risk. Jesus hits the sweet spot. Not isolation, but purposeful engagement. The Pharisees labeled people sinners who did not meet their man-made standards of holiness. They created a special classification for those whom they disdained. There is, but there is great impact, in, and you see the story that Jesus associated with people that the religious community rejected. And this does serve as a reminder to us that you cannot use Jesus as an excuse to live in immorality and sinfulness while pretending to, to reach the lost either. Motive matters supremely. If we go to places and hang out with people who are opposed to everything that God stands for, And if we mask it by trying to say that we are trying to win them to Christ when we are not, and they don't know where we stand, they don't know who we are in Christ, and they cannot see any difference in our lives, then we're we're deceiving ourselves in that setting. Let me close with this idea, the, the significance of table fellowship. Jesus reclined at table with tax collectors and other people that were deemed unacceptable by the the general population, not by Jesus. Remember that. Jesus uh, accepted them. Now, the significance of table fellowship in those days was much greater than it is for us. Uh, Now, we know that we build good relationships around tables. That's why we love to eat with each other. But by sitting at table with these people, Jesus was showing acceptance of them and friendship with them. The Pharisees could not fathom how anyone in their right mind who wanted to be taken seriously would do such a thing, would lower themselves to associate with such immoral people. But that's precisely the point. 
See, redemptive interaction is perfectly illustrated in the incarnation. The Philippians 2 idea that Jesus humbled himself by becoming one of us to identify with sinful humanity while never being tainted by it. God's mercy is beyond belief. It's... It's, um, it is controversial, okay? You're going you're gonna to get into controversy with it. If you are merciful, people will see you wrongly sometimes. It is uncommon, but it is life-changing. It is life-changing. It's kind of like Jesus saying this. It's, he's saying, my church is going to be a place of mercy. My church is going to be a place of mercy, and there will be blood to cover your sins, and it will be mine. And my love will overcome the worst of sins and accept those living on the fringe. Because I delight to choose unlikely subjects to show the miraculous wonders of my mercy. Paul, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor who became the church's greatest missionary and theologian. John, a son of thunder who became the apostle of love. Matthew, a despised outsider living on the outskirts of Jewish life wrote a gospel to the Jews. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for being merciful to us. Thank you, Lord, that your mercy is beyond belief. Lord, help us to grasp it just a little bit today. We know, Lord, that go and learn are your marching orders for us today, and we know there's no easy answers, and we're not going to get it in one sermon. And But we want we want to become like the one who was willing to identify with those the self-righteous condemned. We want to show mercy so others might hear your message of mercy. And we know, Lord, it's going to take time. And we we just pray, Lord, uh, for your grace as we we walk in, in your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.